It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast coming to you, so hope you have your ticket. Get on board, put your seatbelt on, enjoy the journey. This is the holiday edition of the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast with your conductor, Anthony Smith. This train is going to take you on a wild, long journey. So strap it in, buckle up, enjoy the journey. Happy Thanksgiving. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, and that show starts next. Welcome to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast on a Thanksgiving Thursday, and have we got a lot to get to, Uh, just how much we're going to get to, there remains to be seen, but I promise I will not disappoint, I know I didn't do my NFL recap, I didn't do my NCAA college football recap, and I still may not do that today, but there is some to get to today first of all once again happy thanksgiving i know you guys are geared up for some football so let me just go ahead and wet your whistles and get you ready for a little bit of football action so here we go Every year, millions of Americans lay on their couches in tryptophan-induced comas to watch the Detroit Lions and Dallas Cowboys play football. But why? Why do these two play every year? Even when they're starting guys like Quincy Carter and Joey Harrington? Well, let me tell you. The year was 1934, and big-time radio station owner George Richards had just bought the Portsmouth, Ohio Spartans and moved them to Detroit to become the Lions. Hashtag Spartans. But despite having a good squad, Richards couldn't get the fans to care about his new football team or even show up to games. So he came up with a desperate marketing ploy, play a game on Thanksgiving. Richards scheduled a matchup against the undefeated defending NFL champion Chicago Bears and used his radio cloud to convince NBC to broadcast the game nationwide. Not only did the Lions sell out the stadium, they had to turn away fans at the gate. And so a tradition was born. 30 years later, the Dallas Cowboys were struggling under a young head coach named Tom Landry and were looking for a way to boost their popularity. So when they were offered a chance to play on Thanksgiving in 1966, they reluctantly accepted. Turns out it might have been one of the best decisions they ever made. Texans were into holiday football, too, and the team broke its attendance record completely stuffing (laughs) the Cotton Bowl. And America got a second helping of tradition. Finally, in 2006, the NFL decided six straight hours of football. That's not enough. So the league added up a night game for the lineup. If you think about it, it's just like Thanksgiving dessert. You don't need it, but you want it. And why the hell not? So what a way to get the show started off talking about the history in a minute and a half of the tradition known as Thanksgiving Day football. Unfortunately, you will not be getting your dessert today. The matchups for today, the early game will be the, I guess you can call it the breakfast, brunch game, whatever you want to call it. We just call it the breakfast game. Houston at Detroit. The game actually starts at 11.30 Central Time, 9.30 a.m. 
specific time. And then for your afternoon meal, you get the Washington football team at the Dallas Cowboys. And what's crazy about that game now is the fact that that game could actually have some implications on the standings in the NFC East because right now the Philadelphia Eagles are pretty much train wreck. They are a team that is divided. And when you stop to think about it, how would you feel? You done paid Carson Wentz all this money, but your team statue is a guy who's not even on the team no more. So it looked like the race is going to come down to the Redskins or the Cowboys. Uh, who would thought, as bad as those teams have been this year, that the narrative of that game is that this is an important game for both teams in that weak division. I'm still on my soap soapbox. I don't think no team in the NFC East, if you got below 500 record, should be awarded a playoff, let alone a home playoff berth. I think the NFL needs to take a long, deep look into that. This is the NFL. These guys are getting paid to perform on the field. This is not no little league, peewee, Pop Herman football league, Pop Warner football league where you get a participation trophy. And in essence, that's what you're doing. You're rewarding a team with a sub-500 record because they win their division, their weak division. You're basically awarding them a participation trophy, and we're going to give you a playoff spot. I think the NFL needs to take a long, hard look into that situation. Because I can tell you right now, there's three teams in that NFC West. And God forbid if the fourth team decides, hey, you know what? Let's get out. Let's, can you imagine all teams in one division all having over a 500 record? Only to have to sit at home because a team in a weak division has a team representing them with a sub-500 record. But who am I? I'm just a guy on the podcast who probably won't get heard by the people that need to hear it. So those who do listen, I sure do appreciate you. I thank you for listening. So that was my rant for today. I want to look at something, though, because we're up on basketball season. We'll get back to some football news, but I want to look at something right now since we're in ready to kick off this basketball season and have a very interesting story because I am one of very high interest in HBCUs and and uh, I'm interested to see how these schools are going to be doing this 
year. And how can the narrative for black, historically black college and universities change? So a story popped up about a month ago. I want to share here. Just one of the biggest challenges all HBCU NCAA basketball programs face at the NCAA D1 level of the game is recruiting. The creators of HBCU Elite 100 recruit camps are looking to change that narrative, though, one camp at a time. Ja Rollins and Chris Lethal Shooter Matthews had one set clear directive in mind when the first HBCU Elite 100 prospect camp opened its doors this past September to level the playing field in terms of exposure for high school and prep level talent at HBCU NCAA basketball programs. HBCU hoops recruiting in general has been a revelation this offseason with five-star big man, McCure Maker, landing at Howard University and with a growing number of high-level high school recruits taking a closer look at HBCU programs. As great as this past offseason has been for the visibility of HBCU programs at the D1 level, that dynamic hasn't historically been the norm, with most HBCUs in general not having the kind of resources to present a larger recruiting footprint on the AAU scene at camps, etc. <clears throat> it's a reality that was pretty apparent to both Rollins and Matthews when plans for the HBCU Elite 100 were on the drawing board. Seeing a glaring disparity in that type of program representation as former collegiate players and later as professionals in their respective niches in the basketball world, cemented their resolve to change the paradigm for kids that are looking to play college basketball at the D1 level and beyond. I'm a disruptor by nature, Ja Rollins stated during a recent interview. I don't like anything that's normal or comfortable. That premise was one of the big catalysts that drove Rollins to make the concept of HBCU Elite 100 a reality. Both Matthews and Rollins aren't new to the sport or to the prep and collegiate nature of recruiting. We both played organized basketball, college basketball. Both have translated that experience into extremely visible positions within the business of professional prep basketball, AAU basketball, and college basketball recruiting. Rollins has worked with both NBA's Atlanta Hawks, and one of the top AAU organizations in the country in Nike's Georgia Stars AAU program in player development and other roles. Chris Matthew, a native of arguably one of the biggest hotbeds of basketball talent in the country in the D.C. metropolitan area, played his collegiate ball at St. Bonaventure and Washington State, respectively, before playing professionally overseas. He then translated that career into becoming one of the best shooting coaches in the world. He and Rawlings are creating a bridge for high school and prep players that wasn't necessarily there before in terms of avenues of communication with HBCU hoops programs at all levels of competition. In September, 
the September event in Atlanta had an in-person and virtual representation from a who's who of Division One and Division Two HBCU basketball programs, including North Carolina A&T, Norfolk State, Howard University, Florida A&M, Alabama A&M, as well as multiple teams representing the Central Intercollegiate Association, CIAA, and the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, the CIAC, from the Division NCAA Division II level of competition. What we're going to do here is we're going to take and play some audio. So we'll be right back after this audio. I'm John Rollins, uh, co-founder of HBCU Elite 100 um, and CEO and commissioner of AEBL Hoops. Um, you guys are here at the first annual HBCU Elite 100. Super proud on the talent that came out today. Um, a lot of coaches came out to see what we were bringing to the table. And so far, so good. Everybody's, you know, giving us raving reviews. Um, and the most important thing to me with this camp is making sure that we're bridging a, a gap between um, elite student athletes and HBCU programs. Because always, 99% of the time, uh, HBCU programs are being either overlooked or they're underserved with resources to get out and really truly recruit uh you know, top elite talent. So we wanted to bring it right to them, and that's what we're doing here today at the uh, HBCU Elite 100. Chris Matthews, a lot of you know me as Lethal Shooter. I'm at one of the top camps in the world right now, HBCU Top 100. Um, the one thing we're trying to do in the community right now is give back to the black community. And the one thing we want to do is let all of them know they're kings and they can make it in life. We're using basketball. We're not letting basketball use us. And we love everybody so much. Stay locked in and stay tuned because these camps are going to take over the world. And there you have that. So, will the HBCU Elite 100 attain the same kind of household name association and visibility as camps like Nike 100 or Pangos? If Rollins and Matthews get their way, they'll be just as big. 
Looking at the tremendous reception and success of these initial series of camps, that dream of equal visibility for the HBCU Elite 100 isn't just needed, it's realistically attainable. Within the larger framework of HBCU hoops for schools at the D1 level, the event of these camps could prove to be a recruiting boom for programs that may not have the budgetary resources to be on the recruiting circuit as often as their Power Five or even some of their larger mid-major counterparts. If this past golden off-season of visibility and attention to the MEAC or SWAC basketball is any indicator, the HBCU Elite 100 has the chance to become an indispensable tool in bridging the communications gap between student-athletes that are exploring the possibility of playing their college ball at a historically black college and the HBCU programs that looking to build competitive winning cultures and teams. It's a prospect that could end up making the appeal of playing at HBCU programs even more appealing from both cultural and a practical perspective. So we will keep our eye out on that. The HBCU Elite 100. We will see how they can actually bridge the gap between some of these athletes in these HBCU schools getting them some more exposure that is so rightly deserved and needed. So we hope you enjoyed that this segment does far uh we still have a lot more to get to because there's another article that i want to also look at before we take our first break yes i guess you could say that this first segment is going to be dedicated to the hbcu so this will be my hbcu segment like i said at the onset when i started my podcast that i would be looking at the HBCU landscape. So what Mature Makers HBCU choice may mean for college basketball. The one and done era has seen five-star recruits flock to blue blood programs like Duke and Kentucky. In recent years, some of these prospects have sought the professional route going overseas until they are age eligible for the NBA and now some are taking the money the G League is offering for its select teams. There are more options for these elite level players and now there may be a new one. Mature Maker, the cousin of NBA forward Don Maker, is hoping to show attending a historically black college and university, HBCU, is a viable route. In July, the 6'11", 235-pound forward made national headlines by committing to Howard of the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference 
over the likes of UCLA, Memphis, and yes, Kentucky. I dare to be different, and I always consider myself to be a leader, Maker said after his announcement. I want to change the current culture and climate that has kept five-star athletes like myself from viewing HBCUs as a viable choice. The decision will shine a bright light on Howard and the 20-year-old Maker raising both the player and the program's profile. The Bison won just four games a year ago, yet expectations from the outsider now through the roof. These aren't players like Maker. There aren't players like Maker in the MEAC, someone capable of handling the ball, blocking shots, and shooting from the perimeter with his size and strength. He was ranked 18th in his class by 247sports.com and was voted to be and was voted to the MEAC's preseason all-league first team by the conference's coaches. He's a legitimate NBA prospect. There's nothing on the court he can't do. He has every skill set that a 6'5", 6'6", high-level player has, said Coach Kenny Blakeney, who is entering his second season at Howard after serving as an assistant at Columbia, Harvard, Seton Hall, and Delaware, following his career as a player at Duke. He passed the ball better than I anticipated. He shoots the ball better than I anticipated. I think he's going to dominate that league, Rivals.com National Recruiting Analyst Bob Rob Casty added. They're going to play him at five positions. Sometimes he'll play point guard. He can handle the ball pretty well for his giant size. He's a freak athlete. Dropping him in that league, if he doesn't dominate, there will be something wrong. His guardian, Ed Smith, wasn't surprised. Baker was born in Kenya, grew up in Australia, and came to the United States for high school, took this path. In high school, Maker opted to attend Orange Lutheran in California instead of established powerhouse Matra Day Prep. He wanted to be integral in building something rather than joining the party already in progress. That was part of the reason he chose to go to Howard. That, in addition to the opportunities he saw for himself at the school, a time of social unrest and the Black Lives Matter movement maker was attracted to the idea of playing at a black college for a coach like Blakey, who had begun recruiting him when he was an assistant at Columbia. He liked the thought of attending the same school that produced the likes of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, late actor Chadwick Boseman, and recently deceased civil rights activist and politician Elijah Cummings. Blakey and his staff put on all on a full court press emphasizing the value of Maker playing in a big market in Washington and utilizing his versatility, giving him freedom to show his entire skill set, providing him and his family with a package of more than 100 pages explaining the value of Howard University. Consistent across the board was the, was the ability to change the narrative that you can come to an HBCU, you can be successful, you can be a lottery pick, Smith said. They told us, we're going to showcase 
McKeer as a modern day big. We'll play him in the post. We'll play him on the elbow. We'll play him in transition. They were like, it's a chance to make history. Blakeney has already seen improvement recruiting results since Maker's commitment. He landed Purdue transfer Noel Eastern in August and recently received a commitment from top 100 forward Kalul Matting, top 150 forward Duncan Powell. Meanwhile, committed to fellow MEAC school at North Carolina, A- North Carolina A&T. Four and five star recruits have reached out to Blakeney about wanting to be recruited by Howard. Maker, his coach said, has made it cool to be recruited by HBCUs. Premier class of 2023 guard Mikey Williams listed five HBCUs in his top 10 and hasn't been shy about the potential of attending one. A lot of recruits want to see how it goes, Cassidy said. There are a lot of kids that would like to do it, but it's kind of a gamble. No top-level kid has ever done it. Even if Maker thrives, leads Howard to the NCAA tournament, and is a top-five NBA draft pick, Cassie doesn't expect this to become a common occurrence. Top recruits aren't going to suddenly flock to HBCUs. It could, however, lead to improved recruiting for those schools. You can see a trickle effect, Cassie said. Maker could be a trailblazer, someone who creates new paths for elite prospects like himself. But that's only if he succeeds. He's expected to dominate. There will be so much focus on him from the start. How he performs could determine if his decision to go to Howard is an anomaly or starts to trend. Since Maker's commitment, his potential media profiles have received more than one billion impressions, according to Blakeney. Obviously, there are going to be a lot of eyes that are going to be paying attention to what we're doing this year. The Howard Coach said, but we embrace that. So there you have it. Possible effects that Mature Maker could have just from playing at Howard University. You've seen some of the prospects for some of the upcoming classes, transfers coming in. So it's going to be an interesting time for HBCU schools. And don't sleep on those leagues. So tell you what I'm going to do now. I'm going to take my first break right here when I come back. I don't know which way this train is going, but we're on the tracks. That's all that matters. So stay tuned. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Be coming back after this word from my sponsor. Welcome back to my second segment, and now what I'm going to do, I'm going to kind of bring things back in closer to home. We looked at the HBCU, but we also know that the weekend, Saturday after Thanksgiving around here in the state of Kansas, is a big weekend, a big Saturday. 
of sorts because it is the culmination of what has been, I would say, one of the most trying of all trains football season. This season was filled with postponements, games being rescheduled, schedules being reshuffled, but we made it to this Saturday known as State Playoff Football. The crowning of state champion will be made this Saturday at various locations throughout the state. So we're going to look at the state football preview. And we're going to start with Class 6A. Blue Valley North 7-2 versus Derby 8-2. And that game will be at Olathe. Saturday at 1 p.m. Derby is 5-1 in state title games since 2013, including the last two championships. The Panthers won in 2013, 15, 16, and 18, and 19, and finished runner-up in 2017. Derby defeated Blue Valley North 24-16 in 2018 after a 49-42 Blue Valley North win the year prior. In both of those seasons, Blue Valley North featured Graham Mertz, a high school All-American and currently the starting quarterback for the University of Wisconsin. Henry Martin has taken over as the full-time starter the last two seasons and has cleared 5,000 passing yards. Mickey Miller with division run offers is a key offensive threat. He has been offered by Nebraska, among others. Derby was 3-2 and two at one point, a schedule that included two canceled games and a 45-14 season opening loss to Mill Valley. The Panthers' worst defeat in 10 years. Since then, the Panthers have won five in a row and have averaged 52 points a contest in the run. The Panthers had just three home games versus seven road contests, including playoff wins the last two weeks at Lawrence and Junction City. Senior Lim Wash has passed for 1,074 yards with four, with a 14-6 to six touchdown interception ratio and has rushed for 1,182 yards and 17 scores. Sophomore Dylan Edwards has 184 carries for 1,663 yards and 25 scores. Let me repeat that. Sophomore Dylan Edwards has 184 carries for 1,163 yards and 25 scores. Alex Key is by many considered the state's best offensive lineman as well. Jonas Vickers first started on the offensive line as a freshman. Senior linebacker Jack Howman has led Derby in tackles the last two years. He leads a bevy of standout defensive players, including seniors, Colson, Siring, and Luke Stewart, and defensive back Tanner Knox, who has returned after missing the first three contests. 5A looks to be a dandy as well. That game will be played at Pittsburgh State University Saturday, 1 p.m. will be Class 5A, Mill Valley 9-2 versus undefeated Wichita Northwest 10-0. This is a rematch from last year that Mill Valley won 40-31 with a pair of late scores. This matchup is expected to be close with many of the key players back. Northwest has seniors at quarterback, running back, 
his top receiver, and six of his top seven tacklers. Mills Alley's quarterback, top three rushers, and top ten tacklers are all seniors. Mill Valley is 3-0 all-time in finals. Northwest, 0-3. Both teams are stacked with many of the state's best players at their respective positions. Mill Valley has faced a much more challenging schedule, though has not lost in a game where senior All-State quarterback Cooper Marsh has played a full contest. Northwest has played only one non-C League opponent and came back to beat conference rivals Captain Mount Carmel and Bishop Carroll the last two weeks. Marsh has passed for 1,342 yards with a 13-4 TD interception ratio. Senior Corinne Wittenauer has rushed for 1,173 yards with 14 scores. Senior Jacob Hartman is a dual threat with 16 offensive TDs. Mill Valley senior Ethan Kremer has multiple school records, including career tackles for loss and sacks. He plays both ways. For Northwest, senior Julius Bowden has 1,358 yards rushing and 23 scores. Junior Jeremiah Moore has 855 rushing yards and 11 TDs and is a key player in special teams. Northwest has significant defensive talent, such as lineman Zach Dare, Nathan Hale, and Nathan Carter. Linebackers Jacob Youngman and defensive backs Todrick McGee and Wadu Colomo. Dare has committed to Army and Colomo to Northern Illinois. Both squads have excellent kicking. Mill Valley's Chris Tennant has committed to Kansas State and Northwest Carson Arndt is the state's all-time leader in kick points. Art has committed to Butler Community College. As 4A, St. James Academy 7-4 versus Arc City 6-6 at Hutchinson Community College, also known as Gowan Stadium, Friday 1 p.m. The contest marked the biggest upset of any classification. St. James lost to rival Bishop Meage in the regular season, and beat the Stags 36-35 in the state semifinals in overtime. Arc City led, held off McPherson 28-27 with a pair of late interceptions, including one in the final seconds. McPherson has lost four straight state semifinals all by one score or less. St. James has its first ever season in at least the semifinals. Arc City is in its first finals since 1986. The ages run of six straight titles ended. Stags were looking for their state record seventh consecutive state crown. St. James has significantly improved its passing game and has easily broken the school record for passing yards. Senior Dakota Burrett has completed 176 of 295 passes for 2,613 yards for 26 scores against six interceptions. Senior LeJames White a first-year transfer from K.C. Piper, has again yielded a massive year. He blocked the Miege extra point in overtime. Overall, he has 1,937 all-purpose yards with 28 total scores. St. James Academy is a remarkable plus 23 in turnover 
margin, including three interceptions and five fumble recoveries. Arc City sophomore Gabe Welch has cleared 2,000 passing yards. Arc City has the most losses by any state qualifier in state history, according to KSHSAA archives. Class 3A, Perry LeCompton, 11-1 versus Andale, 11-0. That game will be at Hush Community College, all, a.k.a. Gowan Stadium, Saturday at 1 p.m. This is a rematch from the 2019 title that Andale won 35-7. Andale has won 24 straight contests, the longest current run in Kansas. The Indians are certainly the favorite, but Perry LeCompton has done a masterful job returned to the championship without first-team All-State quarterback Billy Welch. The cause lost Welch in early season and lost 10-0 to Topeka Hayden on October 16th. After Welch went down, went out, Perry Compton moved running back Dad Nick after quarterback. The cause have won at Hayden 20-7 in the round of 16. In 2019, Welch threw for 2,316 yards as part of an offense that passed on 41% of snaps. This season, the Cows have passed 30% of the time. Metcalf has 1,251 passing yards with 11 scores and 5 interceptions. He has 194 carries for 1,213 yards and 24 rushing TDs. Junior Riken Rush has 103 rushes for 933 yards and 11 scores. The top four and nine of the top ten tacklers are seniors. Senior Riley Bessler has 135 tackles, and senior Hayden Robb has 125 stops. Robb has surpassed 500 career tackles. Last two-way. Rossville 12-0 versus Hoisington 12-0 at Salina District Stadium Saturday at 1 p.m. A battle of the undefeated. Hoisington had his long-awaited first trip to the state championship game. Coach Zach Baird, a Cardinal alum, is 71-12 in his Hoisington career. The Cardinals have enjoyed a great mix of balance and controlling games. Hoisington has outscored teams from 110 to 14 in the first quarter. The Cardinals have allowed first quarter points and only trailed once, both versus Phillipsburg in week four. Hoisington also allowed just 11.6 points per game. The Cardinals won at Beloit 26-0 last Friday and tied the school record for wins. Overall, Hoisington's defense has permitted just 4.4 yards per play, including 112 rushing yards and 3.8 yards per carry. Senior Mason Haxton, a, a four-year player, has passed for 778 yards with a 10-1 touchdown interception ratio. Senior Holt Hanslick, who was injured last season, has 140 carries for 1,044 yards and 14 touchdowns. He also leads the Cardinals with 72 tackles, 11 for loss. Hoisington has struggled with some injuries, including on the offensive line, 
and senior Hunter Morris, a lockdown corner. Senior Josh Ball, the second leading rusher, has moved to the line. Hoyzerton has averaged 7.2 yards per play and 33.4 points per game. The Cardinals have tied the school record for single-season victories. Rossville, long known for dual-threat quarterbacks, won state in 2014, 15, 16 with quarterback Tucker Horick, the state's all-time leading in total offense. The Bulldogs have been ranked number one all season. Rossville has scored 682 points, 273 ahead of Silver Lake, the number two offense in 2A. Rossville has averaged 52.5 points per game and has 9.3 yards per play. Horrick's brother, Junior Torrey, leads a high-profile attack with 1,352 passing yards, 1,460 rushing yards, and 51 total scores. Senior Woodrow Rezac, among the state's fastest players, has 873 rushing yards, 11.2 yards per carry, and 12 rushing scores. He also has 17 catches for 300 yards and 5 TDs. So I am looking at these astronomical totals. Junior Teray Horek leads a high-profile attack with 1,352 passing yards. 1,460 rushing yards. If you do the math, that's 2,810 yards of total offense. That kid may be something special. That's 1A. 12-0 Opie versus 10-2 Oakley at Fort Hayes State University Saturday at 1 p.m. Two teams that are built around defense and the running game. The winning team could very likely score under 20 points. In the last two weeks, Oakley has profusely slowed the game down and milked the clock. The Plainsman beat Smith Center 20-0 and Inman 9-0 in the last two weeks. Oakley lost to both squads in district play. Oakley had never beaten Smith Center in school history. Oakley, the state's Biggest turnaround had eight combined wins in the last four years. Coach Jeff Hennick, known for his charisma and energy, has led a seven-win improvement. Oakley is into the state title game for the first time. Opie has allowed just 35 points and is the only 118 with fewer than two losses. Oakley senior Ethan Abel has 256 carries for 1,979 yards and 26 scores. Oakley is plus 15 in turnover margin. The Plainsmen were plus 3 in turnover margin versus Inman. Ran 17 more plays and finished a combined 6 of 13 on third, fourth down. Key factors that helped Oakley win. Inman was one of 10 on third, fourth down. Opie defeated Linden 14 to 12. His second one scoring victory versus the Tigers this fall. Opie is winning three all-time in state games with the long title in 2008. Junior quarterback Damon Redeker and senior Kendon Robert lead the offense. Eight-man division one, Little River. 10-2 versus Leody, Wichita County. 
1208 at Newton's Fisher Field, Saturday, 3.30 p.m. Wichita County is 28-5 with third-year coach Brent Douglas after he finished 3-6 the season before he came in the program. Wichita County is into its first championship game in school history after they reached the semifinals last year. The Indians have dominated opponents with 11 straight wins by the 45-point margin. Wichita County is extremely senior-laden with multiple three- and four-year starters. However, senior Manny Chavez, featured on Catchy Kansas in the regular season, transferred from transferred back from nearby Tribune Greeley County. He and senior running back linebacker Jesse Gardner are the long two-way starters. Chavez is the defensive leader with 18 tackles for loss. Senior Cade Ritzke, widely considered eight-man's best quarterback, has thrown for 1,655 yards with 33 scores against five interceptions. He has rushed for 1,270 yards and 23 TDs. Wichita County has navigated a schedule that included two wins versus Hoxie, 9-0 versus other opponents, and a district that had one collective non-district loss. Little River coach Kevin Ayers has taken three teams to state titles in his 3-1 all-time state championship games. Tom Young is the only coach to win championships at three separate schools via KSHSAA archives. Little River is into the first final since 2001. Little River has seniors Graham Stevens and Jaden Garrison. They have combined for 22 scores against three interceptions in their second year as dual quarterbacks. Garrison has 1,477 yards, 10.8 yards per carry, and 33 rushing touchdowns. He also has seven receiving touchdowns and has scored 272 points. Little River has battled some COVID-19 quarantine and injury issues, but is expected to have everybody healthy for Saturday. Eight-man Division Two, Hanover 10 over to St. Francis 11-0 at Newton's Fisher Field, Saturday 11 a.m. This is expected to be a titanic matchup. St. Francis has was ranked number one and Hanover second all season. St. Francis has never won a state title game and lost in the Division One contest to Canton Galva last fall. St. Francis returned all but two players and has built depth this year. St. Francis has its great seniors of running back Shadron Blanca, offensive lineman Colton Nitzel, running back Adam Cream, and offensive lineman fullback Jesse Baxter. Cream and Baxter started defensive end while Nitzel and Blanca see time at multiple defensive positions. Blanca, with multiple collegiate offers, have 2,000 plus yards of total offense. Last week, St. Francis trailed Victoria, the first time St. Francis was behind this year. St. Francis came back to win 44-22. It marked the Indians' first game closer than 45 points. Hanover has had one game under 45, under the 45-point margin, a 40-22 victory versus Clifton Clyde in Week 6. Hanover has multiple offensive weapons, including 1,165 all-purpose yards from senior Colin Juman. Hanover is 5-3 in state games since 2009.
2008, St. Francis will have a significant size advantage, though Hanover is known for its athleticism. So there you have the rundown of the state title games in each respective class from 6A all the way down to 8-man. So hope you can get out and support these teams best you can under the circumstances. That will conclude that segment. And what I will do now is I will take me another break. And when I come back, I will give you some more sporting news. So stay tuned to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor, Anthony Smith. Once again, happy Thanksgiving. So what was Marshall really like, your experience? My experience just, obviously, you've been through it. And this is why I wanted to get on this, you know, platform with you and talk about this because you've obviously played college sports, college basketball. Like, just super intense, right? Like, has his ways of coaching basketball and he has his system in play. He wants he wants you to buy in to his system, keep the game, sense, you know, simple, play defense, rebound. Like, he's pretty simple concepts. Obviously, we can get into the whole, you know, situation that happened, like – the big thing right now is like, we're the snowflake era. Like we can't handle, you know, being yelled at. Hard coaching. Well, yeah, we can't handle hard coaching, which, I mean, everyone's different, Doug, right? Like, you know, Fred, me, Klee, others can handle it. You know, some players can't. Simple as that. He, if you can't buy into what he wants you to do, like he's going to hang a cloud over you each day and tell you like he's trying to hammer this into you. So like players are going to struggle, right? They're going to transfer. Well, last year just so happens not eight, nine guys leave. You know, now it's a snowball going down a hill, right? You've seen Jeff Goodman's stories, you know, telling, you know, tell he's diving into everyone. Like he, he told me, I talked to him, couple weeks ago he's like all I did was call one guy from a transfer right and he leads me to another guy now it's just like a snowball effect well you know coach you know he is a hard coach and you know do I respect him absolutely he's been great to me and my family that's from my you know my opinion these other players that are coming out I respect them for telling their stories were there days where I thought coach like crossed the line for sure like that that happens and what they did here with like the committee and stuff. And I, this is the first time I've been coming out public, by the way, about the situation. He, uh, he had obviously made a statement. I think his first statement was like, kind of like the political correct statement, obviously him, him and his people in his circle, like wrote it out and like, he didn't really touch base on like the Shaq Morris altercation and some of the other things uh, obviously were top of the headline. And I was like, okay, cool. Like maybe, you know, maybe he's just going to like come forward and be like, you know, I, you know, I did these things. I apologize. Like, you know, Wichita loves this man, like loves him. 
So like, I'm thinking like, okay, maybe he's going to understand like, okay, man, you know, it's a different era of kids. Like I crossed the line on a couple of things. I apologize. And, you know, I'll do whatever I got to do to, you know, stay with my team. Cause in reality, the priority is not to worry about, you know, things. The last thing him, he as a coach wants to do is worry about things he might've messed up on in the past. Priority is the kids that are on campus right now trying to prepare for this, you know, this season because the season was supposed to start tomorrow. And, you know, I'm waiting. I'm sitting here waiting. I'm like, all right, he's going to, you know, make a statement, make a statement. Nothing. Welcome back. Thanksgiving edition, A Train Sports Talk Podcast. And it's been nearly about a week now since the resignation of former Wichita State head basketball coach Greg Marshall. And a lot is still being said, and a lot that still has yet to be said. So, speaking of, a lot has been said. We do have some audio from one former player. You know, I was there when all this was going on. Like, I'd seen him, you know, kind of do some things here and there. Former Shocker star Ron Baker talking for the first time publicly about abuse allegations against Greg Marshall. So he talked at a podcast today. Jacob Albrock's been listening to this. So, Jacob, what is Baker saying? Mike, it's a really interesting interview in which Baker talks about his positive relationship and admiration for Marshall, but he also says what happened isn't right. He says he did not personally see Marshall punch Shaq Morris, but he says several of his teammates did, and Shaq talked to the team about it right after it happened. Baker believes Shaq and those teammates. Baker said that the moment leading up to it was a hard play in practice, and Marshall's reaction made things tense and uncomfortable at the time. He's the first shocker Baker is from that 2015-16 team when this incident is alleged to have happened to come out publicly and talk about it since those national stories came out in early October. Baker says he thinks Marshall should have just admitted what happened and thinks it could have cleared the air and made things right. He also explained why nothing was said at the time of the incident from here as teammates. We don't want the spotlight of you know, the prestigious Wichita State Final Four, undefeated, sweet, you know, Sweet 16 resume to turn into, damn, Coach Marshall, you know, hit a player. Like, that's why Shaq, I think, waited all these years to now circle back on the You can hear the Doug Gottlieb show locally on KGSO radio. Baker did say he spoke with the law firm that's investigating Marshall. He says he understands why so many people are defending Marshall after everything he's done for the program in Wichita. But he also hopes people understand why Shaq told his story and hopes the Shocker community can come together again soon. Hi, I'm Ben Miller with Systems Greenhouse. And we'd just like to say Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and would like to welcome everyone. Okay, and that's enough for that right there. Uh, So, very candid remarks. And I actually at one point had that interview lined up that Ron Baker did with 
Doug Gottlieb, and hopefully I can still pull that up. Because there was more to it. But, yes, Ron Becker came out. And one of the good things, if you can find anything good about this, is the fact that he said he didn't see it. But at the same time, he says he has no reason to believe that Shaq Morris and other teammates would make up such a story like this. So there's quite a bit out there. I'm going to see if I can actually pull up this interview that he had. Because there were some very interesting comments that were made. I mean, he would... I'm trying to pinpoint how I want to reference this. It was as if, well, you, you heard what they said on the news break there, that there was, there was conflict, there was some confliction there on Ron Baker's part. A lot of confliction. As a matter of fact, here, I'll just give you this story right here. Uh, shocker legend Ron Baker breaks his silence. On abuse investigation into Greg Marshall. Ron Baker has ended his silence on the situation that ultimately led Greg Marshall to resign as head coach of Wichita State men's basketball team. In a wide-ranging hour-long interview on Doug Gottlieb's podcast released Wednesday, it was clear Baker still had gratitude toward Marshall, but was disappointed by how his former coach handled the accusations of physical abuse. Baker said he thought Marshall could have potentially saved his job if he owned up to hitting Shaquille Morris during an October 2015 practice and apologized. Marshall issued a statement to Wichita Eagle last month that read, I simply state unequivocally that I have never physically struck a player or colleague. Allegations claiming otherwise are false. Aker, during the interview with Gottlieb, never said he saw Marshall hit Morris, but did say he believed his teammate and the other teammates said they saw it happen. When Marshall denied it happened, Baker was motivated to then talk to the St. Louis-based law firm that WSU hired to investigate the allegations. I wasn't going to get involved. I was walking the fence line 
and trying to be supportive. Then coach comes out with that statement, Baker told Gollick. I was like, what is going on right now? This isn't even making any sense. There are two rules when we were <clears throat> here. You got a sheet of paper the first day you walk on the campus. And the two things on there say, don't lie to me and don't steal from me. That was it. I'm thinking, man, my freshman year, he said those things and now he's coming out with this. It was disappointing and just rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't feel like it was right for him to turn the narrative on my teammate. That really, really hurt me. That was tough. Baker is the first shocker from the 2015-16 team to go into detail about the incident since Morris went on the record with Stadium's <clears throat> Jeff Goodman in an October 9 story, saying that Marshall hit him twice during the practice. A former shocker All-American, Baker said he felt compelled to share his side of the story after Mar Marshall never issued an apology or admitted any wrongdoing in his resignation. I think it makes things right. He should have bitten the bullet and said, man, I really messed up. I let whatever it is get to me. I love winning so much, Baker said. He would have cleared the smog around this town. It's obvious why none of those players in the gym that day went public to defend Marshall because we don't want that feeling of, man, those guys are not loyal to their coach. Baker, in particular, he had to wrestle with those conflicting emotions more than most. <clears throat> On one hand, he believed Morris and his teammates that Marshall had done something wrong. On the other hand, Marshall was the coach who took a chance on him and helped propel him to an NBA career he never thought was possible before WSU. Marshall is a hard coach. Do I respect him? Absolutely, Baker said. He's been great to me and my family. That's from my opinion. These other players that are coming out, I respect them for telling their stories. Were there days I thought coach crossed the line? For sure. Talking to my parents after the stadium story, I was like, Dad, some of these things happen, Baker said. My dad was like, but you're not Ron Baker as a pro without Greg Marshall and his staff. It put me in a situation like, wow, how do I handle this? If I went public whenever it came to light, what's it going to do? If I say some of these things happen, okay, now it looks like Ron Baker is not loyal to his coach, the guy who made him into what he is today. But at the same time, a teammate is a teammate. Here's how Baker detailed the October 2015 incident involving Marshall and Morris. There was a bang-bang play at the rim. Shaq was late to it on like a help side action and went up to the rim and Zach Brown falls down. Marshall flips a switch. Obviously, really upset. This is a starter and he kind of goes in on Shaq. I'm sitting there like super uncomfortable. You can hear a needle drop in the gym. Just super uncomfortable. Like you don't even feel like playing basketball the rest of the day. So Marshall kicks him out of practice and follows him out onto the concourse. We're all like, man, we're just shook like what is going on.
After practice, we go down to the locker room and come to find out Shaq tells us he got hit. Shaq and Marshall's relationship was never tight-knit. They had some tension. Tension continues to grow and grow and grow, and it just so happens to be that day where it got to a point where it was just bad. A couple of other players in the locker room said they had seen it. It just felt wrong. <clears throat> I didn't know as a 21-year-old how to handle the situation. We're a good basketball team. We don't want the spotlight of prestigious Wichita State Final Four undefeated season, Sweet 16 resume to turn into, man, Coach Marshall hit a player. That's why I think Shaq waited all these years now to circle back on the situation. Gottlieb then pressed Baker because he didn't claim to see the punch on if he thought there was a chance that Morris was lying. Personally, I don't think Shaq would make that stuff up in the locker room. Baker said, what's in it for him? He's not going to make up something like that. And a couple of other guys said they saw it happen. It's just sad and disappointing. Baker said he doesn't want Morris, who lives in Wichita, to feel uncomfortable going out in public around Wichita following Marshall's resignation. He also stood up for the former players who were being labeled from the snowflake era by fans, according to Baker. Big thing right now is we're the snowflake era. We can't handle being yelled at. We can't handle hard coaching, Baker said. Everyone's different. Fred Van Vliet, me, Clee Early, others can handle it. Some players can't. Simple as that. If you can't buy into what Marshall wants you to do, he's going to hang a cloud over you each day. Each day. He's trying to hammer this into you. So players are going to struggle. They're going to transfer out. It might not bother me or you, but my point is it might bother someone else. We're not in their heads. Baker said he understands why fans are still supporting Marshall, the coach who has more wins than any other in WSU men's basketball history and led the Shockers to the 2013 Final Four and a record-breaking 35-1 season in 2014. He mentioned talking with Flint Hills National Golf Club owner Tom Devlin and President Jeff Johnson Two wealthy donors to WSU who came out in support of Marshall. They're like, Ron, we really support this man. Think of what he's done these past 14 years. It's remarkable, Baker said. I said, I totally agree with you. But guys, what he did that day, that's not right. Baker said, Baker, who said he has not spoken with Marshall since before the allegations, made a final plea to his former coach to help unify the fan base so Shocker fans can move on together. So I hope this gives some clarity to the city. These people that are supporting Marshall, they have every right to, and I totally get where they're coming from. But I want those supporters to come together and understand why Shaq did what he did, Baker said. Now hopefully we can turn the page. The committee made their decision. Coach resigned. I really think Marshall coming forward would bring all of us tight-knit like it used to be around these parts. So there is quite a lot right there. Can things be patched up? Mind you, 
Marshall thanks Shocker Nation, players, coaches. But that one key thing that some people are looking at, he never did give an apology. And right about now, how far would an apology go? Would he apologize because he feels that's what people want to hear him do and say? Or would he be apologizing because he knows it's the right thing to do, regardless of what people think or say? I mean, why why would I throw that out there like that? Think about it. We have all been in a situation where we've had to apologize to someone, say I'm sorry to someone. I was in a situation, what, a little over a year ago. And it's one thing when a person harps on you and tells you, well, an apology would be nice. Well, think about it. In that moment, you are giving that apology because this person is harping on it and you just want to pacify them. But an apology means more when it's from the heart. Keep in mind, I'm 53 years old, so I've heard a lot of sins growing up. That that comes from the heart reaches the heart. If I apologize to you because you're in my face telling me that I need to apologize, chances are you're really not going to feel that. You're just going to be pacified. But when I have a chance to let some of the dust settle and things pan calm down, and I come back and tell you, say, hey, you know what? I was wrong about what I did and wrong about what I said. I'd like to apologize to you and see if we can make things right. Then this one is more genuine. So. Wouldn't the apology from Greg Marshall right now fully be accepted or would it be known as a pacifier? Or do we let this thing settle and someday Marshall comes back and says, you know what? I handled that situation wrong. I want to apologize. I want to say I'm sorry for all the shame and grief I caused on the program. Then at, at that time, we could probably accept it. Right now, I think an apology would be a pacifier. But that's just my opinion. Anyway, you've been listening to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Hope you're having a nice Thanksgiving this day. Enjoy the weekend. Be safe. Please don't drink and drive because I want you to continue to listen to my show. Anyway, enjoy the rest of your day because I'm going to do the same. Until the next time, keep your tickets because you can get back on board. Who knows, maybe next time we'll pick up a passenger or two. Until the next time, take care of yourself and each other. And once again, happy Thanksgiving from the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor, Anthony Smith.